Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. You've heard the saying many times, Nashville is the it city. For years, people from all over have visited for the vibrant live music scene, the friendly Southern culture, and of course, to get a taste of our signature hot chicken. It's a local specialty that has spread like wildfire across the world. Nashville style hot chicken is offered in restaurants in New York City, Detroit, even Australia. And KFC even started offering so-called Nashville hot chicken back in 2016. But this staple dish is more than a meal. In honor of the annual Music City Hot Chicken Festival today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of an episode all about hot chicken that we first aired last summer. We'll dig into the story Nashville Hot Chicken tells about gentrification and race in our city and meet the matriarchs of hot chicken themselves. But first, we're going to spend some time talking about the Natchez Trace Bridge. Now, a quick warning. This conversation may be difficult for some listeners as it involves suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Again, that number is 988. Or text HELLO to the crisis text line at 741741. Now, last year, when we first aired this episode, the National Park Service had just installed chain-link fencing on the Natchez Trace Bridge. The bridge is something of a tourist attraction. It stands at about 155 feet above Highway 96, and the railing is less than three feet high. This fencing is a temporary fix for a pervasive problem. Since 2018, reports show 32 people have died by suicide at the bridge. My next guests have a personal connection to this, Trish Morello and Brianna Brown. Welcome to This is Nashville, and thank you both for joining us to talk about this sensitive topic. Thank you, Khalil. And can I just say that that being the opener for Hot Chicken is uh, is so Nashville, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And for the listeners, just on a humorous note, Hot Chicken royalty is sitting out in the green room, so this is, you know, it's I feel uh, among uh, the best here, so this is, again... You run the gamut here. I love it. So, yeah, serious stuff, but you've got to laugh, right? You've got to laugh. That's right. You do have to laugh. Yep. It's life. Now, Trish, I'd like to start with you. You know, you're the co-founder of the Natchez Trace Bridge Barrier Coalition. Yes. I know this is difficult for you, but can you share with us how you got involved in pushing for this change? Yes. And if I get emotional, Khalil, I will recover. So just just start talking. If I if mm-hmm. I stop, go to Brianna. <laughs> well, I'm right here with you. I got you. Okay. Uh, uh, I lost my son, John, uh, in 2016 at the bridge. He was only 17. And um, at the time, I didn't know a whole lot about suicide and the bridge. But as you experience these things and you read more and you learn more and you talk to people, it became very apparent this is a problem. This bridge is what they call a, quote, suicide magnet. There's something about it that draws people. Uh, It's extremely high, as you just mentioned, 155 feet high. It's got this very low railing. It's not even three feet, as you said. And it's over a road. It's not over water. It's not over a canyon or, or grassland or hills. It's over a road. People are driving under there. So... Uh, In about 2010, there were some groups that tried to do something. The Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network 
made a big push with the National Park Service to try to do something. Uh, I know the Tennessean has written uh, editorials on the subject. They only got as far as, uh, now this is a federal structure as part of a national park. Mm -hmm. So we are up against about as much red tape as you can imagine, right? Uh, They only got as far as the Park Service agreeing to put up a sign on each end, which is nice. You know, it says, there is hope. It's got the lifeline number. Wonderful, right? That's it. They had mentioned something about call boxes. They never went in. So that was 2010. Fast forward to me coming around, and this is now 2017, 2018, 2019, it just felt nothing was happening. You know, the ball had kind of, I think everyone gave it a push. They ran into a lot of resistance and they went on with their lives. So here you've got this new crop of people. Um, I had some friends in the local press who ran stories on it. Uh, I ran into at a function, Aaron Elmer Burke, who was my co-founder and he, some uh, Scott Ridgway at Tennessee Suicide Prevention Network introduced us. He said, hey, you want to do something about this? He wants to do something about this. You guys should meet. He had lost his sister there. And that that meeting was such a catalyst because you felt all of a sudden you weren't alone. Mm. And there is something that families have a passion, families, more so than I think any any other institution or entity. You know, so that was kind of the start of things. We formed this coalition. We got real lucky. We spoke out in the right places. We we gathered more and more support uh, in Nashville and in government. And uh, it kind of went from there. So... Brianna, you've also been very involved in advocating for changes at the bridge, and I understand that's for pretty personal reasons, too. Would you mind sharing your story with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So in 2016, can you guys hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Um, In later in 2016, a couple months after um, Trisha's son, um, in May of 2016, I attempted suicide. Um, and on each side of the bridge, there is, um, a hill with a lot of trees. Um, and so I was on that side. Um, I had just come home from my junior year of college. Um, and I attempted suicide. I fell over a hundred feet and broke about half, probably the entire upper half of my body, um, and spent approximately a month at Vanderbilt hospital, um, where they, put me all back together um, and was incredibly lucky with that. Um, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression in college. I was a music major, which puts you under a lot of stress. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to share about what happened next for you? Like what was going through your mind? So, okay, I'm trying to think, sorry. Um, I, you know, before my attempt, really just, I felt hopeless. And it's interesting because I never thought about the bridge for suicide, like when you're having suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts. Um, I never really thought about the bridge. Uh, I used to go visit it as like a tourist attraction. You take your friends there from out of town because it's, you know, really beautiful. Um, But I never thought about it in that manner. And I, my memory stops the day before my attempt around lunchtime. Um, and so I don't remember my actual attempt, which I think is a very, it's a huge blessing. Tell me this, after your experience, tell me why was it important for you to speak out about suicide and safety at this bridge? Absolutely. Um, 
So I am the only person that has survived um, from this bridge, which has taken a lot of lives. Um, and I'm very fortunate to be here. I'm very, very grateful to be here. Um, so I feel that, you know, there's been, I think the number is currently at 42, I believe it's mm -hmm. been 43 yep. lives lost to the bridge. Um, and with being the only person, I feel that I almost have a duty to be the voice for those people. Um, when you have, when you're suffering from mental illness, it's hard to find your voice and to speak out. And I, the hardest part about a mental illness is speaking out and saying, I need help. Um, so I feel that like I, I was given the second chance at life and now I have this opportunity to help others, um, and to tell my story. I mean, the fact that I'm alive is amazing. And so I feel like I've been given a second chance at life and now I can help share my story and talk about mental health, um, and help with some suicide prevention to help that this isn't going to happen to other people. I know there's a lot of people who are happy that you're making the most of that opportunity. So, thank you. you know, Trish, in 2019, the state legislature de declared a suicide health crisis at the site, at the bridge. Yes. But why is it taking so long for well, this temporary barrier here's to go the, up? Here's, again, it's the uh, it's so complex. So, so the bridge is part of the Natchez Trace Parkway, which is a national park. It's a 444 mile national park. So we're we're dealing with the federal government. The state did that as a show of support saying, in essence, look, this isn't ours, but we're just saying it's in our state and we don't like it. So, you know, th th and I loved that they did that for us. I loved that. And I believe it had unanimous support. So it was just another feather in our cap saying, OK, federal government, come on. You know, it's here in Tennessee. Even our even our state legislature is deeming it a, a hazard. So let's do something. Yeah. And to me, it was such a practical fix. Just put something up. Right. It's the easiest suicide method to take off the table. You just, you've got railings that are too low. You just erect higher railings or a higher fence. It should be an easy fix. Um, the bridge, you know, is, has been deemed exceptional for its design. It's won awards for that segmented concrete design. It's slated to be on the National Historic Register. There's all kinds of stuff on the line for them. So uh, in order to plan and engineer and all this, they had to think about wind and weight and, you know, are we modifying the structure and what about a certain bat that lives around the bridge? Will it be harmed? And I mean, it's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot yeah. to it. Uh, there's uh, right now for public comment are, are the three possible designs for the permanent and the, the, the temporary isn't up yet. They've just started kind of the prep. You know, I, I went out there yesterday to see it with my own eyes. What does it look like? Oh, well, there's, it's just that they've put the cones down. They've got, they've got portable traffic lights for the flagging. So nothing's up yet. It's just the, it, the prep down to one lane. But I have to tell you, these were the most beautiful traffic cones I've ever seen hmm. in my life. I mean, I, <laughs> hmm. I took so many pictures. I, I never knew I'd love a road work ahead sign so much. Ugh. But I, I, I got to ask you, how does it feel? I mean, you would think that the federal government seeing this act of solidarity from the state by naming yeah. it this site, this this crisis site, you would think the, the federal government would, would kind of fast track. I know they have to take in mind the environmental yes. impact and the aesthetic impact, yes. but why aren't they well, fast tracking? This? Well, get this. They told me this is fast tracked. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. We're speeding along here. Okay. Three, four years. 
that's that's <laughs> down the line. Uh, they did say in uh, what March of nineteen was when they finally said, "Okay, we're going to do something. Give us some time. We've got some ideas, but this will be a process." And look, look ahead. You know, twenty twenty three or so for the for the permanent. Now it's looking more like twenty twenty four. It's just a lot of work. It's very involved on their end. Plus, you've got a bridge that's very minimalistic. There's not a lot to work with. You know, it's not like the Golden Gate where you've got all kinds of structure. This is just a very sleek design. So mm-hmm. it's tough. It's tough. Now, Brianna, aside from a permanent barrier, what do you want to see the federal and state government do to prevent suicide attempts at the bridge? I think that they can offer, you know, a, are the call boxes, Trish, are the call boxes there now? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So we have the call boxes there. We have these offer these other offerings and these deterrents. Um, you know, I think a big thing with suicide prevention and helping with mental health is offering um, therapy and offering counseling services and behavioral health services to people that are more affordable. A lot of people I think could, or that they would seek these services if they were more affordable sometimes um, because a lot of these services don't, aren't covered by insurance. They don't take insurance at all. Um, and it's out of budget for a lot of people. So I think offering more affordable options um, and making it more reachable for people, I think would really help. Um, I think, you know, getting out and talking about it more, it still is seen as a taboo thing mm. about, you know, if if we can talk about suicide or um, talk about mental health or someone suffering from mental illness, it still is a taboo. Um, and I think, you know, ending that stigma and being just have, being able to have an open conversation will see, will help more. Anything you want to add, Trish? Just to those who, 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 you know, the, the pushback on this, you know, the, the, the natural tendency is folks to say, oh, what's the point? They'll just find another way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's important to know that, that, that suicide is often a very impulsive act. And if you can, oh, this is where I'm going to get emotional. Uh, uh, if you can buy people time. Um, Brianna, take it uh, away. <laughs> um, so, okay. I, okay. I, oh, wait, I, I recovered. I'm not there to give you a hug. <laughs> I really would, but I'm giving no. you a hug for the computer. Thank you. No, um, I'm going to tell you something. I read a story of a girl, a 19-year-old girl. Oh, thank you. Oh, Khalil. See, in person. Isn't it awesome? In person. Okay. Mm-hmm. read a story of a, a 19-year-old girl who was about to take her life, but her room was messy. And she thought, I can't let them find me here like this. So she started cleaning her room and guess what? It bought her time and things changed and she weathered that darkness, that storm. That's all, that's all we're saying is we just want to buy people time. That's it. Last question, Brianna, I understand that your family and friends, you guys celebrate what you call a second birthday. Will you tell me more about that? Yes. So, um, my anniversary, my attempt anniversary, um, is May 13th. And so it really, I look at it as a second chance at life and the second birthday. Um, it, you know, could be the anniversary of my death. Um, and for those 
42 other people. It's, you know, that anniversary is the anniversary that they lost their loved one or their best friend or their sibling or spouse. Um, and so I look at it as an opportunity to celebrate being alive and being here. Um, and so we have a big dinner with some family and friends and we'll do something fun that day. Um, and I'm just every year, I'm very grateful to be alive. And it's, it's a nice reminder. Um, and there's, you know, I have a lot of reminders every day. It's, you know, some days my back hurts and I broke almost my entire back. Um, and so, you know, my back hurts and I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's a little thing, but it reminds me like, okay, you're here. You have this, um, I have a tattoo on my C6 vertebrae, which is the one vertebrae that didn't break, that uh, is a white oak leaf and acorn where it's the trees that are near the bridge. And so I have that, I have all these reminders, so I never forget. I want to thank you so much for your courage. Thank you, and thank you for coming on to the show. That's Brianna Brown, advocate for suicide prevention and bridge safety, along with Trish Morello, co-founder of the Natchez Trace Bridge Barrier Coalition. Thank you both thank for you, sharing Khalil. your story. Thank you so much for having us here today. It means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Again, if you or someone you know is in crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Again, that number is 988 or text HELLO to the crisis text line at 741-741. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of an episode we first aired June of 2022. Now, after the break, we'll switch gears. It's time for Hot Chicken. In honor of today's Music City Hot Chicken Festival, we're bringing the heat. And just how hot do you like your hot chicken? Mild, medium, or blazing? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. You ready? I'm ready. Showtime. That's Nashville's own Caroline Randall Williams, and the trailer for her new series on Discovery Plus. Hungry for answers. This is not just a food show. The first episode is, is all about dish? hot chicken. Because I penned that name, Hot Chicken, in 1980. We have to ask why one person gets to become the ambassador over another. I didn't know we were getting this deep today, but I'm in. I'm exploring the intersections of race, food, and culture because behind every good food story is a black story. My crop brought a higher price when I sold it to my white neighbor than when I sold it on my own. Does that make you mad? It makes me so mad. And black American stories are essential ingredients to America's food story. Nashville's own Caroline Randall Williams is the host of that series, Hungry for Answers, which premiered on Discovery Plus on the day we first aired this episode last June. Caroline, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you in cyberspace. <laughs> oh, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. So, you know, for the series, you set out to answer the question, who gets to cook black food? And the first episode is all about Nashville hot chicken. Let me just start by asking, how do you like your hot chicken? Oh, my God. If I have things to do, I like it mild because the mild still got some kick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if I'm but, you know, if I'm if I'm in it for the evening, I will have the medium or if I'm feeling really adventurous and I have a bourbon. 
I will have the hat. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like your bravery right there. Um, so you are a Nashville native. What surprised you as you dove into the history of hot chicken? Well, you know, I think that what surprised me and brought me um, uh, a lot of insight and kept, keeps me hungry for answers is really um, the the amount of conversations that still need to be had about it. Because I grew up, you know, going to Prince's, my family, we've eaten there my as long as I can remember. So the story of where hot chicken comes from, that's not news to me. I had the privilege of growing up black in Nashville um, and, uh, and eating well all around our city. Um, and I think that what surprised me was this, how, how unknown the Prince's story is in some ways, how under, uh, under fortified the, the positive bridges are between what new, new Nashvilleians think of as hot chicken and what the original story is. So that's what surprised me is how I took it for granted. I knew Prince's was the OG. Mm -hmm. you know, in my, in my family's narrative. And I was surprised at how few people know that story still. Well, how did you approach telling the story of hot chicken in that first episode? Well, I had the, um, one, I had this amazing team. When you, when you come knocking uh, on people's doors with Viola Davis's name behind you, uh, mm -hmm. people, people tend to say yes. Um, and you know, I, I like to think of myself as a bridge builder and someone who invites people to tables to welcome tables, even if the conversations are complicated. So um, I just asked people to talk with me and told them that I promised I'd tell the truth, which is what I do. Um, and, you know, both of the gentlemen I interviewed in the, uh, in the show were, that's what I want. I want people to be brave enough to come and have a hard conversation because it's still going to be a good one. And we're going to honor and respect each other on both sides of it. And I feel like both of those guys were came to the table to do that. And I was um, and I was grateful. And then, you know, being able to sit down with Miss Andre and honor her legacy by lifting it up and putting it at the front. Um, mm. That was really uh, powerful for me, too. You know, one of the things you ask in the trailer, which we heard just just a few moments ago, is who gets to become the ambassador of a dish? So what's the answer to that? Mm. Well, so who gets to or who should? <laughs> mm. um, the, I think, you know, who gets to is who has um, the most traditional forms of capital socially and financially. Um, and who should are the people whose ideas and blood and sweat and tears and story um, is being told through the food or through the art or through the sound. You know, we have this question in all sorts of elements of Black culture. Um, it's that line between a appropriation and appreciation that uh, America really struggles with that dance, I, I think. Also with us today is Rachel Louise Martin, author of Hot Hot Chicken, a Nashville story, a book about the history of hot chicken. Rachel, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, I'm so excited to be here today and I'm in awe of the panel I'm on. This is quite the lineup. As we have a lineup for us. <laughs> uh, okay, so first things first, yes. what's your hot chicken order? Oh, I am a wimp. I grew up in a family where my grandma left the house if my mom started cooking with garlic because that was too spicy and it stunk up the house. Okay. So I do mild and I grit my teeth. Okay. And yeah, that's shameful to admit in Nashville, there's, but here I am. There's no shame in that <laughs> game. So like Caroline, you're a Nashville native as well. I'm from the area, yes. So did you grow up eating hot chicken? No, 
No, I didn't discover hot chicken existed until about 2013 when I came back. I had been away for graduate school and work, and I came home and everybody was talking about this Nashville food and 10,000, 15,000 people were coming to a festival dedicated to it. I had no idea what it was. Your listeners have probably figured this out. I am white. <laughs> well, from what I've learned, there are plenty of white people eating chicken back in the day. They just did it in the back of the restaurant. But I'm going to ask our other panelists yes. about that. Yes, you need stories about that a one. A little bit later. Now, so as your interest started growing about hot chicken and you started to dig in, what did you find? I discovered that the history of hot chicken here in Nashville really mirrored the history of race and urban development in the city. That it wasn't an accident that somebody who looked like me, who came from a family that had been in Nashville for three generations, could be in my early 30s before I knew anything about what hot chicken was or its significance within the city that I claimed as home. So what does that tell you about Nashville's priorities? Well, for one thing, it tells me we are still extremely segregated, and that is something we have failed to address as a community. It also tells me that throughout time and throughout our history, we have repeatedly made choices about who was going to have power, who was going to have prominence, who was going to have a voice, who would have recognition, who would be included in our neighborhood plans, who would be considered when it came time to rebuild a neighborhood. It told me that as a city... Gentrification is just the newest form of something we have been undertaking since our very founding. And it's about time for us to fix it. Caroline, how does that resonate with you? I mean, uh, as the as the granddaughter of um, Avon Williams Jr., who spent a huge chunk of his career in Nashville, you know, uh, he was the first black state senator elected to the Tennessee State Senate after Reconstruction the end of the 60s, and he spent a lot of time fighting the injustices of um, urban development and what and the and the harm it wrought on Black Nashville. So um, it's music to my ears to hear that truth being told, um, because I come from a family that's been fighting to fix it for a long time. Now, Rachel, your focus is on the convergence of Nashville's rise of being the it city, hot chickens, popularity explosion, and gentrification, as you just mentioned. So Elaborate more. Like, what are your thoughts on this spread of the hot chicken phenomenon, yet the history being ignored or forgotten in many cases? I think it's very, I don't think it's an accident that hot chicken is suddenly so popular, just as Nashville is becoming an it city and we've got a bunch of new people moving here. When you move to a new town, you want to fit in. You want to find a way to say, I am part of the community and I know the history. And when my friends come to visit, I can show them where to go. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to have something you can post on social media showing how tough you are and you can eat hot chicken that I can't handle. Um, and you can. Um, so those sorts of identity markers are really important for newcomers to a community and to a city. And so the rise of hot chicken's popularity, along with an emphasis on spicy food in general in the early 21st century, the, the convergence and the timing was perfect. At the same time, because of Nashville's choices that, that we have made in terms of who belongs where, what businesses are given access to business loans, what businesses are put on certain street corners, 
because of those sorts of choices that we have made, some restaurants were better poised than others to profit and capitalize on what was happening. And the restaurants that were better poised were, for the most part, white restaurants. Mm. And the matriarchs of hot chicken who have been keeping this food alive for generations were on the outskirts of the city and in neighborhoods where tourists and visitors and newcomers don't go. Now, Caroline, just watching that trailer, I feel like this series is very personal for you. You know, what did it mean to you working on the episode about hot chicken and its legacy? Well, I'm just... One, grateful to everyone who thought that it was a good idea to let me start at home. Cause I mean, I think that for so many people, foodways start at home and in their own kitchens. And for me, it was in my own hometown. I got to start this telling the story. And you know, you can't I when we first started kicking around ideas about what food to talk about first or what question to ask first for hungry for answers. And it was like, I was like, well, we can't start with fried chicken, <laughs> you know, because it feels like the most obvious place to start when you're sort of trying to explode, examine, bring to the table literally and figuratively questions about black food, Southern food, complicated political food in America. And then I was like, wait, this is, who am I, who am I kidding? Like I'm me, like we got to start with the most obvious, but also the most complicated thing. And I'm from Nashville. So we're not just talking about hot fried chicken. We're going to talk about hot chicken. Um, and I think that it's just a, it was just sort of like a miracle of intersections. Um, and of people that said yes to a good, right thing, um, it means a, it means a it means everything to me. Is well, the short answer. How is preserving or even establishing that story of hot chicken vital to the culture here in Nashville? I mean, a, a cliche comes to mind that if you don't know, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, right? And I think mm -hmm. that this whole idea of Nashville and hot chicken as a part of newcomer Nashville identity, as y'all have been so thoughtfully discussing um, what does that identity even mean if we don't know what the origins of the dish. I think that um, I think that it's essential to the story because otherwise we're building a Nashville identity on nothing. You have to build it on a foundation. Um, and the foundation starts um, you know in Black Nashville in North Nashville, you know, the, I go to, I used to go to Bolton's, I got my hot fish at Bolton's, my hot chicken at Prince's, but like, that's where the, that's where the food starts. And if you have to have your foundation, that's it. That is Caroline Randall Williams. You can check out her series, Hungry for Answers on Discovery Plus. She was joined by Rachel Louise Martin, author of Hot Hot Chicken, a Nashville story. It was really great to talk with you both. Thanks for being here. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. After the break, we'll take a quick trip out to the kitchen at Bolton's Spicy Chicken and Fish. What's the Bolton secret? Maybe, if you stay tuned, you'll find out. Chime in by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Some of the mystique around hot chicken is that each place has their own secret recipe for their dry rub. And depending on how much coating is on the chicken, it can be so hot that there are rules for eating it. The sign says, eat at your own risk. 
do not touch your eyes, wash your hands before you potty. And generally, if the child is up under 12, I ask permission with the parent because a lot of kids, they just can't tolerate it. And even though they say, well, my kids eat spicy food at home, baby, it's not like this. <laughs> that is Dolly Matthews, general manager of Bolton's Spicy Chicken and Fish. She gave producer Paige Flager a behind-the-scenes look at how the magic is made. We are in the kitchen of Bolton's Hot Famous Chicken. <laughs> you got wings? Let's do wings. That's a popular item. He has now um, gotten the uh, chicken wings out of the cooler and he's dreading it in the flour. <laughs> the grease, the oil, very hot, 350 degrees hot oil. Probably, um, approximately takes seven minutes. They coming up about, they should be up. Yeah. Now how you gonna tell which one is hot? It's gonna have the most spice. It's gonna be redder than the rest, okay? So we're gonna make this one hot. You know, we try not to get it too hot where it make you lose your composure, but everybody got a different tolerance level. So if your tolerance level is light, you're in trouble. The dry rub is a spicy uh, dry rub consisted of different spices, which is a secret, which I can't say. If I told you, it wouldn't be a secret. <laughs> Love, peace, joy, and happiness is our secret up in here. Everything we do, we try to do it with joy, love, peace, and happiness. And it does make the food taste a difference when it's done out of love. If that ain't the truth, I don't know what is. It's an honor to welcome my next guests to the show, Hot Chicken Royalty, y'all. Miss Andre Prince, owner of Prince's Hot Chicken Shack, and Miss Dolly Matthews, general manager of Bolton's. It is a pleasure to have you both on the show. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Now, Miss Andre, let me start with you. How did hot chicken come to be? Is the myth we all heard, is that true? We don't know. We weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> we can only speculate because back then they didn't keep records. Mm -hmm. They just started doing things. And uh, I've always given it the tribute out to the woman who was more than likely mad, angry, because her man had been out all night. This chicken started out of an emotion, mm -hmm. an extreme emotion. Could have, of course, it could have been much worse, but it started with the man's stomach. He's going to eat. Man is going to eat, as my mother always said. Mm -hmm. That's the place, best place to start as far as revenge is concerned. This is a revenge chicken. Okay. And I give the shout out to the woman who more than likely started it at, uh, toward my great uncle Thornton Prince, who was tall, handsome, very jovial, very jolly. He was a people person. 
Would you say he was a ladies' man as well? Of course. Mm-hmm. That runs in the Prince family. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that for a fact. My father was also. <laughs> now, I, but, like, I like what you said about this this phenomenon that spread across the world was started with an emotion. True. A hot, angry emotion. Well, when my great uncle liked his revenge from this lady that we don't know who it was. My great uncle was married five times. We don't know whether he was, it was just his lady friend or his wife. We don't know. This chicken has been in my family almost 90 years. Hmm. When it started, more than likely they, everybody had main jobs and it was used to supplement the income. So it wasn't, uh, it, it was mostly on the weekends when they would be off from work. And that's where the 4 a.m. started. We were open to 4 a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays. So more than likely it was, show, it was sold out of the house at first. Mm-hmm. But my great uncle more than likely wanted to share it with his friends because it, it kind of got his attention. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't boring. Yeah. It, this is a conversation piece. Mm-hmm. So he shared it, and the word got around. It, it, they didn't advertise on radio, no yeah. TV, surely. But the word got around regardless. And here we are today. That's right. Still talking about it. That's right. When I took over in 1980, August of 1980, I decided to rename it for the family. Tell me about the legacy of Bolton's Hot Chicken. How did that get started? Um, The legacy of Bolton's Hot Chicken started with my husband's uncle, which was Bolton Polk. Um, As I understood, I was told that back in the the day... um, Back in the day, um, he shared the kitchen with others that had a hot chicken recipe. So he stopped because due to his illness, and before he died, he shared the hot chicken recipe with my husband Mm -hmm. that he had, which was a dry rub. As you all know, Nashville's full of hot chicken, and everybody got their own recipe. Some of it's wet, some of it's moist. Some of it's dry rub. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use strictly dry rub. So um, with that, we were able to do fish too because you can put the dry rub on anything. We can make you some spicy hot corn on the cob. Okay. But whatever you would like hot, but we specialize in chicken fish, chicken okay. and fish. Okay. Now, these restaurants and these recipes have been in your families for generations Miss Andre, tell me, what was it like growing up and knowing that your family had this dish that defined the city? Growing up, we took it for granted Hmm. because it was always there. But I might add, as far as Bolton Polk was concerned, when my great uncle Thornton died, his, his brother, Will Prince, took over. When Will Prince died, his wife, Maud, took over. 
as far as my understanding, Maud was kin to Bolton Polk, mm. and he worked for the Chicken Shack. He worked for what was formerly called Barbecue Chicken Shack. So he worked in the family business. When Mayor Purcell did a study on hot chicken when he was over the Kennedy Center at Harvard in Boston, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, he discovered through his research that we were the first to cook and sell spicy chicken on a commercial basis in the country. And that's how it became so popular when he relayed that to the public. Mm -hmm. People came out from all over the country and all over to the world mm -hmm. to see about us. And that's how it became so popular. We were the secret of Nashville for a very, very long time. Now, you know, Nashville has changed a lot over all these years. Indeed. Bolton's was sold for a value of over $1 million. Miss Dolly, what types of difficulties have you all had as this business is going along and this city is changing? The property was sold for over a million dollars in which I was very disturbed because we weren't offered the first chance opportunity to buy or deny. Mm. It, we've been there 20-something years, and we had asked the uh, owner for us to have first right yeah. so it could stay where it was. And I think us being a minority, being there that long, we should have had an opportunity to purchase the the property. Were you the longest tenants there in that entire property? Uh, I'm not for sure, but consecutively we were there for 20-something years. Mm -hmm. um, during those 20-something years, uh, when we got it, it was vacant. And my husband and I caulked the walls to the ceiling and the, and the walls to the floor and had it passed by codes and did the plumbing, everything. It was really doomed to be torn down. But we made it what it was. And, you know, uh, from that, we started having TV episode opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, we were recognized by uh, New York Times and Anthony Bardang sat in our kitchen and ate hot chicken when he was alive. How did he handle it? Oh, he told me to back it up for the camera. He had the hot. He asked for the hot. He thought he could handle the hot. He said, well, oh, I can't go on the camera toe down like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I backed it down for him, and he just said it was the hottest stuff he had since he was in China. Mm -hmm. But um, we've had numerous opportunities like Food Paradise and Taylor Swift video and stuff, and it's all fun and stuff like that. But, you know, getting to the culture of the hot chicken, it's, to me, it's just as many white people eat hot chicken as it do black. Mm. I um, really, I could really say in the earlier days, our clientele was 70% white and 30% black. Of course, Princess had most of the black clientele, which, you know, they swear up and down. You know, they a lot of them still don't even know about us now. Mm. But, uh, you know, I guess it was due to different exposure. I don't know. And they were there first. They was established uh, in their uh, vicinity for, uh, I guess, over 10 years before we started in 1998. 
Now, now, Miss Andre, you took over operations in 1980. Mm-hmm. I took over in August of 1980. I renamed it for the Prince family, the family that started it. I wanted them to have that recognition. And growing up, eating the spicy chicken on early on early Sunday mornings, I remember it being hot. I Take the name Hot Chicken in 1980. Family name, Prince, as I remember it growing up, Hot Chicken. And that's why I named it Hot Chicken. I wanted my family to have that recognition. I wanted the little mom and pop place to stay in the family. We were always in the neighborhood. We were a staple in the neighborhood. And it was, like I had said earlier, it was open late to 4 Mm a.m. And I might add, there are more, and always has been, more white people that have eaten it and are eating it now, and has always been more white people. As my mother had said, if you have what people want, they're going to find a way to get there, regardless. We were in the ghetto, but white people would always find a way to get there. You know, now we have national chains like Kentucky Fried Chicken. They offer a, air quotes here, Nashville hot chicken option. And people love the food, but they don't know how it started and what drove this huge piece of our culture here. Miss Andre, you know, what do you want people to know about hot chicken and its importance to Nashville? I want people to know that more women eat it hot uh-huh. than men. Okay. Men will try it, but women stay with it. That's that's and they long for it. They thirst for it. And I'm now mm-hmm. I see since I've been in the business over forty, almost forty-two years. More children are eating it. Wow. The youngest I've seen was Aiden, who's two now. Aiden, his mother says he doesn't like plain chicken. He has to have a little spice on it. And he struts in there. Aiden is now seven years old. And he struts in there at least twice a week to get his spicy chicken. I don't recommend you eat, uh, children eat it uh, any more than mild. Our mild is the regular okay. barbecue chicken. I, well, the chicken was never barbecued, for one thing. I didn't understand why my uncle, great uncle named it barbecue chicken shack. But uh, he, our mild is what my great uncle sold, Same which question, is now. Same question to you, Miss Dolly. What do you want people to know about hot chicken and its importance? My opinion of hot chicken is royalty. It's nothing like it. Uh, can't be duplicated. Not the real hot chicken. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's universal. Uh, I enjoy the variety of hot chicken because it keeps it from being getting bored to people. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, like hamburgers, no hamburger tastes the same. You got five different chains. Okay, so hot chicken, it doesn't all have to taste taste the same, but it can all be good. I don't like the competitiveness. I don't like the negativity when the first, the new ones come on board, they want to down the matriarchs and this, that, and other. No, just take your slice and do the best you can with it and, and run with it. I'm happy for you. All hail the queens of hot chicken. I want to thank you both for being here real quick. Two questions for you. How do you like your hot chicken, Miss Dolly? Light mouth. <laughs> Miss Andre? Mild. Mild. Okay. And another question, <laughs> and this is totally selfish. Did you happen I'm to aware. bring any did you happen to bring any chicken with you today? Certainly no. not. Oh. You'd have grease all over the place. Well, I don't mind that <laughs> at all. Slipping and slide. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank you both for being with us. Miss Andre Prince, owner of Prince's Hot Chicken, and Miss Dolly Matthews, thank general you. manager of Bolton's Hot Chicken and Fish. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I feel like I'm really a part of Nashville now. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Paige Flager. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gaigos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Le Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody and be good to each other.